My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'd like to highlight some of the content from the July edition of the journal. The first article relates to the prevention of neural tube defects in the UK, a missed opportunity. In 1991, the Medical Research Council demonstrated that folic acid taken before pregnancy and in early pregnancy reduced the risk of a neurotube defect. Despite this evidence, the concern is that most women do not take folic acid supplements. 40% in 1999, 27% in 2012. In this issue, Morris and colleagues report an estimate of the number of neural tube defect pregnancies that would have been prevented if flour had been fortified with folic acid from 1998, as occurred in the United States of America. Data was from congenital abnormality registers in England and Wales. The estimate for reduced risk is 27%. Based on this data, the authors estimate that 2014 fewer neural tube defect pregnancies would have occurred. The authors rightly highlight that the failure to implement folic acid fortification of flour in the UK has caused, and continues to cause, avoidable terminations in pregnancy, stillbirths, neonatal deaths, and permanent serious disability in surviving children. There's an interesting accompanying editorial. Fortification of flour with folic acid is an overdue public health measure in the UK, in which other missed opportunities, including the delays in limitation of smoking in public places, the slow implementation of preventative measures for venous thromboembolism in hospitals and the failure to extend the implementation of fluidification of water are highlighted. The second article I'd like to cover relates to the outbreak of Zika virus in Brazil and beyond implications for paediatricians. Zika virus was previously considered to be an arbovirus of limited importance. We are all aware now of the large ongoing outbreaks that started in Brazil in early 2015 and are spreading rapidly across the Americas and have been potentially linked to congenital abnormalities including microcephaly and Guillain-Barre syndrome. In this issue, Ladani and colleagues review the virology epidemiology, clinical manifestations and implications for paediatricians. The virus generally causes a mild self-limiting illness. The main vector for transmission is the mosquito, although the virus has been detected in semen and blood, making sexual transmission a possibility. In Brazil, there has been an unprecedented increase in infants presenting with microcephaly. More than 4,000 notifications compared with the expected 150 to 200 annual cases. These have been temporarily associated with the increase in Zika virus. 
the association, although not proven, is felt to be likely. There's also been an increase in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. The spread of Zika virus is likely to continue and cases have been reported in Europe. There's no treatment or vaccine available. This has implications for travellers, particularly if pregnant or looking to get pregnant. Paediatricians and neonatologists need to be aware of the outbreak and potential for further spread, recognising that most infections are asymptomatic or mild and self-limiting. Zika virus should be considered in the differential diagnosis in any child referring from a Zika virus endemic area with fever, acute neurological presentations and as part of the workup of a miscarriage, stillbirth, congenital infection or infant presenting with congenital abnormalities, particularly microcephaly. The third article I'd like to cover relates to the health of adolescent refugees resettling in high-income countries. This is a timely and helpful review. Despite a constantly growing number of adolescent refugees resettling in high-income countries, knowledge regarding their specific healthcare needs is limited. Physical health problems are common, particularly infection, nutritional deficiencies and chronic disease. There are often multiple stressors, family, social, cultural and educational, and they are at heightened risk of developing mental health problems. These issues need to be addressed systematically, carefully and sensitively and can be complicated by legal and ethical issues. Early identification and management of the healthcare issues are key to improving long-term healthcare outcomes and reducing the future healthcare burden. In this excellent review, the authors consider the issues and offer practical guidance, including case vignettes, which help focus the reader. Issues like sexually transmitted disease, reproductive health, adolescent pregnancy and child marriage are important to consider. There's a useful section on psychological health. Socioeconomic factors are very relevant to outcome. The adolescent will likely be challenged by a new language and new culture. And this acculturation, the process of adopting the cultural traits or social patterns of another group, can be quite challenging for the individual and their families. Health needs to work closely with education. There are many risk factors for child maltreatment and child protection agencies will have a role in specific cases, although the issues may not necessarily be straightforward. The authors suggest a framework for health professionals for the assessment and management. This is a very relevant article and although somewhat sobering to read, should be essential reading for clinicians involved in looking after these potentially very vulnerable young people. The fourth article I'd like to cover this month relates to Is screening for urine infection in well infants with prolonged jaundice required? A very important question. The National Institute for Clinical Excellence, NICE, 
neonatal jaundice guideline recommends a urine culture for infants who present with prolonged jaundice. In this issue, Stedman and colleagues review their own experience, 279 infants over three years. None met the clinical criteria for a urinary tract infection. 145 had a negative urine culture, 114 a mixed growth, 20 a pure growth, 5 with a pure growth had greater than 100,000 white cells, which were on repeat were lesser or no growth. I none of the 279 had a confirmed urinary tract infection by NICE criteria. This is in keeping with other published UK data, 0.4% incidence, mostly reflecting coincidentally identified asymptomatic bacteria. The authors advise that the need for urine culture should be reconsidered when assessing well children with prolonged jaundice. Of some interest, some of the non-UK data report a higher incidence, that's in Table 1, although many use different diagnostic criteria and different collection regimes. My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please refer to the journal website for the full content of the articles discussed. Thanks for listening.